go ahead and open your Bibles with, you, with me, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. And as you do, clearly the, the weight of the news continuing to come out of Ukraine and its global implications, that news gets heavier by the day. Personally, it, it feels as though I'm, I'm watching scenes from, from Europe from the 1940s, um, except now we're just doing so in HD and seeing what's coming across real time through, through Twitter. Fathers putting their families up on trains, families sheltering in subway stations. Even the news stations, while, they're, while they were still on the air, teaching the people, instructing the people how to make Molotov cocktails to be able to defend and to fight. All this from a people who just a, a few weeks ago were, though under the threat, were still essentially living life as normal. Going to school, going to work, going to play. Now playgrounds are, are riddled with debris. And if we have a heart at all, it's hard not to ask why, isn't it? It's hard not to ask why. And I think the thing that is really hard with that question of why is it forces us to grapple with an even harder reality that we may never know why. Sin, yes, no doubt. But why would God allow such suffering as a part of his plan? We may never know. Now, it should instinctively take us to the cross of Christ to think, why the cross? But in thinking about our text today, and thinking about what we've looked at last week, thinking about the circumstance at hand, here's what we do know. One, we shouldn't be amazed. We looked last week at chapter 5, verse 8, where it says, if, if you see a province, in a province, the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. It's a sad reality that such is life in a fallen world. War, suffering, and injustice. A reality that if we're honestly asking the question why, should also leave us asking why not us? It's not simply a why them, it's why not us? as every tragedy is a reminder that unless we repent, we too will perish. But secondly, when we press into what we can know now about situations such as this and suffering in general, we come to chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 10 of Ecclesiastes, which reads, Whatever has come to be, has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. 
The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? These verses here are teaching us what? Getting us to think about and to contemplate what? That God is sovereign over everything. That the triune God of the Bible is sovereign over absolutely everything. Which if we're being honest, may initially be unsettling to some. Especially if we consider the things like we're presently witnessing in Ukraine. But I want to assure you this morning. I want to assure you this morning that that God's absolute sovereignty over everything is actually the most comforting knowledge that we could ever receive. It is like an incredibly warm, thick blanket on a very cold day. As it means that while we may never be able to answer why to so many of the questions that come through our minds, it's a comforting reality, the truth, God can. God can. And here's why he can. Because God is creator. First part of verse 10, whatever has come to be has already been named. The already been named, drawing our attention back to Genesis 1 and 2, where we're, we're told God did what? He created by, by speaking. By naming his creation into existence. God saying, let there be light, and there was what? There was light. God then calling or naming the light day and the darkness night. And he did this for the land, and he did this for the waters, and he did this for the vegetation, he did it for the animals, and for everything that was created. The, the naming referring to his creating, his establishing, his predetermining what will be. Some things even predetermined before the foundation of the world, as Ephesians 1 so kindly tells us. So when we read whatever has come to be has already been named, it simply means whatever has come to be has already been predetermined by God. It's a reminder that he's not making this up as he goes. We're simply reacting to what's taking place. It's the reassurance that that the God of the Bible is never taken off guard by the chaos of this world. Why? Why is that? Because God is omniscient. God is omniscient. The word omniscient simply means God is all-knowing. There's nothing that he does not know. And it's not because he looks down the corridors of time and sees everything that's going to take place. He's like, oh, okay, now I see how it's all going to work out. So it's, it's not like the sense of watching a movie and knowing how it ends and then being able to like, oh, okay, I, I see it. No. It's not watching a movie because our God is the author of the, the story. As the second part of verse 10 tells us, it is known what man is. So not only does he know the plans that he has for us, Jeremiah 29, 11, but he knows who we are. 
He knows who we are. And get this, he knows who you are better than you know who you are. Kind of scary, isn't it? Kind of. If we're thinking about it from a finite lens. (laughs) But how does he know this? Because he's the one who made us. He is the one who made us, knows every hair upon our head. And, And while we may first be tempted to apply God's omniscience to his knowledge of our sins, that's where we get scared. Like, oh no, he knows my innermost thoughts. He knows what I'm thinking, which is certainly true and fair and needed awareness of. It's also a reminder that our infinite creator, he knows that we are finite. Think about that for a minute. He knows that we are finite. He knows that we have limited knowledge. He's created it that way. He knows that the chaos of this world brings us anxiety and fear and uncertainty. He knows these things, which is why he's constantly telling his children throughout the Bible to trust him, to cast our cares upon him. Fear not the the world, but to fear him, but to fear him as a, a loving, kind, benevolent father who loves his children. See, he's not only omniscient, but he's also omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful. The last part of verse 10 bringing with it some deductive reasoning. That if God is creator, and if he is completely all-knowing, which he is, then who are we to dispute with God? That's the question. Who are, are we as finite to dispute with the infinite. He, in this text, he being we people, we not able to dispute with the one stronger than he. Who is the one stronger than he? Who is the one stronger than we? It is God. Not able to dispute with God. But we try, don't we? We sure try. I think about Job, such a sad and tragic story on so many levels, but he, he lost essentially everything that he had, his children, his wealth, overcome with tribulation. And in his suffering, he began to do what? He began to dispute with God, asking him, debating with God, saying in chapter 23 of Job, my complaint is bitter. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. He's wanting to come before God, that I might come into his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with with arguments. He's wanting to come before God and to make his case known. And again, I think that's something that we can relate to can relate very well, not to the circumstances, the extent of Job's suffering, but to the questions, the thoughts that come through his mind. Because if you've ever suffered at all, and we're not here to compare suffering, but at any point in time, if you've ever suffered, you have likely asked God, why? Why? I don't understand, God. Why? Watching the news right now. 
Why? And you may have even found yourself like Job, even arguing with God, disputing with God. But fast forward to Job 42. You can turn with me there. I believe it's also going to be on the screen. But Job chapter 42, where we find Job repenting before God for his disputing, for his arguing. Job saying in verse 2 of chapter 42, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and in ashes. He recognized he was wrong to, to question and to dispute God. And he repents. But how many of us, like Job, have uttered things before God that we do not understand? Accusations, requests, even accusing God of injustice because he hasn't responded to things like we think he should. God, that's not fair. That's not right. Job did. I'm sure even in our thoughts we have. Thankfully, he realized his error and he repented. Now, does this mean it's wrong? An important question here. Does this mean it's wrong to come before God with our questions? Not at all. When we're confused and hurting, we most certainly need to turn to God with our questions. It's okay to to ask him why. But we must then turn to his word for our answers and let him speak. Whether we like the answer or not. Because let's be very clear here. Asking God questions and questioning God are two different things entirely. And we must never question God. Only a fool disputes with the omnipotent God. Verse 11. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? None. There is no advantage. We cannot win. It's like trying to bring down a giant fortress with a straw and some spitwads. Think about the imagery there. Giant army before you, giant fortress before you. Straw. Spitwad. <laughs> Nothing but a foolish mess. Because who among us knows what is good for us better than God? None of us. Why? Because God alone knows what is good for us. Look with me at verse 12. Follow along in your text. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? 
which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Two rhetorical questions, but important thought-provoking questions we have here with the answer to both being who? Sunday school answer time, God. God is the answer. God knows what is good for our our brief time on this planet, and God alone can tell us what's going to come after us. He knows what's going to happen tomorrow, the next day, and the next day after that. I mean, we don't know with any certainty what's going to happen five minutes from now. Not at all. Much less later today or tomorrow or next year. If the past two years has taught us anything at all, it should be this. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. No idea what tomorrow is going to bring. Nor do we truly know what is good for us. But again, we think we do, don't we? And that's our problem. We never say it out loud because we wouldn't be that level of foolishness. But how often have we been guilty of thinking we know better than God as to what is good for us and for, for others? Despite the fact that we have no idea what tomorrow is going to bring, but we sure, we sure know better. I, I know what's better. I know what the plan should be. The answer is probably more times than we would like to admit. God, if you will just do this, everything will be okay. And yes, it can be confusing. And it can be even really painful at times when we're desiring for and we're praying for those things that that seem right and good and righteous, that God-honoring things. And yet his answer continues to be no or not right now. Like, why won't God stop the war? He's omnipotent. He can Why not? Why won't God bring an adult child who parents have been praying for for years to saving faith in Christ? Why won't God allow the couple who's battling infertility and so desperately trying to have children and wanting to have children, why would he not bring that desire to fruition? Why does somebody so, so young have to die? So young just so many whys that we can fill in there, whys that, that come forth from the depths of real pain and real tears and so many uncertainties, whys that can cause us, if we're not careful, to do what? To begin to question God. But if we're wise, if we're wise, we will not question God. We will humbly ask him our heartfelt questions And look to his word for the answers. But we won't question God. Rather, we'll trust his word that he alone knows what is good for us. Friend, let that sink in for a moment. That he alone knows what is good for us. Even when what's taking place around us or to us doesn't make any sense at all to us. Romans 8.28, the the famous Romans 8.28, reinforcing this by telling us, and and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things referring to literally all things working for good. 
to which we naturally respond with, but how? (laughs) How can a war work for good? How can cancer work for good? And friend, I have to be honest and say, I don't know. I don't know. I may be able to look back and you may be able to look back and see glimpses of grace after we've had some time to pass and look back and say, oh, okay, I see what God has done. But we don't see every detail, just like Joseph didn't see every detail. But I also know that I am not the one and you're not the one who knows what will come after. But God does. Which requires what of us? It requires us to trust him. And to walk wisely according to his word, his wisdom. So let's consider nine ways he provides us in our text today that we can do just that. Nine words of wisdom. Starting with, number one, consider the day of death better than a birth. The preacher telling us in chapter 7, verse 1, How a good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of birth. And I will be the very first to admit, this is like head-scratching difficult at times. Like what in the world do you mean here? Because I think we get the good name part, right? Like understand that. But to say the day of death is better than the day of birth Well, that doesn't seem to make much sense, right? Like who in the world would would desire a funeral over a celebration of a baby? Nobody in their right mind is thinking that way. Doesn't seem to make any sense. That's not the point the preacher is making. No, the point the preacher is making is is what, what does each life event make us consider? Think of that from that perspective. See, a birth, as beautiful as it is, as great as it is, it's filled with all the possibilities of what will be. I think that's part of what makes it so great, so exciting. What will this child be? Like, who will they marry? What will they do? What will they accomplish? So many unknowns. So many times we're guilty as parents of wanting our unrealized dreams. It's like, oh, maybe they'll fulfill them. So, but so many unknowns. But a funeral, on the other hand, brings us face to face with a life that has already been lived. And the question then is, what will people say about the life that has already been lived? What reputation, what legacy will they leave behind? The point being, better to die with a a good name. As someone who faithfully loved God and loved people, than to have all the finest burial ointments, the finest casket, and a wasted life of people speaking ill of you. The preacher forcing each of us to consider that our life will end. The preacher continuing in verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. 
So the reality is, we're all going to die. There's no escaping this. We realize this, but that's not something we want to think about, is it? Not something we enjoy thinking about. We'd all rather rather feast than mourn. We'd rather laugh than, than cry. But what are we told? That the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth or laughter. Why? Because in order to live a, a good life, a life that is going to, to matter, not only matter today, but matter tomorrow, we must first embrace our mortality. Can't ignore it through, through laughter. Oh, just passing it on. See, from a gospel standpoint, I'd much rather preach a funeral than a wedding. I know that sounds weird, but, but hear me out. Weddings, for the most part, are easy. Only thing anyone wants to hear from the pastor is you may kiss your bride. That, that is it. That's all they want to hear. No one's listening to anything that the pastor says. There's no thought about tomorrow, only about tonight. But a funeral is different. And the smaller the casket, the heavier it is. The more questions that come. People come to a funeral, especially the earlier they are in life, looking for answers, coming with questions. Because at a funeral, we're, we're all brought face to face with our own mortality. We know that that's going to be us one day. And the older we get, Every funeral that we go to is that much more of a reminder. And a wise person considers this reality and lives in light of that reality now. It's the fool who laughs it off for another day, thinking that it's not going to happen to them. Three, consider a wise rebuke over foolish flattery. Verse 5, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. And we get this. But that doesn't mean it, it makes it easier to put into practice the, the wisdom of listening to wise, constructive criticism and not listening to the thoughts or the advice of, of fools. We can look at this two ways. One, don't listen to foolish flattery, like those who simply want to tell you who you want, what you want to hear. Don't, don't do that. Don't be that person. And two, don't listen to Job's friends. Job's friends being those who attempted to speak wisdom to Job regarding his suffering. Individuals who at first glance would have sounded wise and knowledgeable it's a person who comes maybe spouting scripture that they have memorized, but ultimately this person offered very unwise, unbiblical thoughts. Thoughts or advice that didn't help. It actually only hurt. It made the situation worse. Both are, are like the crackling of thorns under a pot. 
described in verse 6 as burning thorns aren't, aren't going to bring a, a pot to boil. Why? Because they burn up in an instant. They're there and they're gone. Just little twigs. They just burn up. They're not going to bring anything to a boil. What do you need instead? You need wood. You need substantive wood that is going to burn for a long time to create a hot fire. You need wisdom rooted in biblical truth. Additionally, consider what your heart desires. Because even if you're wise, it doesn't mean you're safe. Look with me at verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. What's the danger here? That even the wisest of people can be tempted by worldly riches. All the more reason to consider what we looked at last week and what it means to be satisfied in Christ and the gifts that God has given. How he's not, uh, how we're not oppressed. We're not an oppressed people, but we're blessed. Let's consider Jesus' sermon on the mount and the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus opening his mouth to teach and saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. See, it's easy. It's easy to consider ourselves oppressed but when God doesn't give us what we think is good. But notice how through the Beatitudes, everything that the world considers weak, poverty, meekness, persecution, Jesus says, blessed are, more fortunate are, more favorable are these. Why? Because they shall see God. They shall be called sons of God. They will inherit the earth. Their reward is great in heaven. This is the message for the Ukrainian church. Blessed are you, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And how do we know all of this is true? Because God named the end from the beginning. So trust that God knows what's good and continue to faithfully follow him regardless of the circumstances around us. Number five, consider how you will finish the race. As we read in verse eight, better is the end of a thing than its beginning and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. 
I mean, how, how many projects and ventures have you started but never finished? Things that you've set out with the best of intentions, like, I'm going to get this done. It's still sitting there. All of us can probably say a lot. Everyone looks good at the start of a marathon, right? Got the new shoes, got the outfit, eating right maybe beforehand. Not everyone finishes the race no matter how good they look. Better to be patient and, and finish the race strong than to be proud and to flame out and fall away. As the Apostle Paul wrote the church in Colossae, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, that was their identity. He has now reconciled in to has now reconciled to his body of flesh by his death, past tense, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, future tense. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, present tense. Meaning our reconciliation in Christ before God, past, and being presented holy and blameless before God, future, is true if we continue in the faith, present, which we will do if we are truly in Christ, which is why we must fight the good fight and we must finish the race strong. How? Through the patience and wisdom that God has provided, which requires us to wisely consider how we will respond to life's trials. Verse 9, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. But friends, when we experience injustice, when we experience suffering or trial or witness such injustice in the world around us, what are we prone to become? Angry. Find yourself angry, angrily asking why. And yes, there are things that should righteously anger us. The things that anger God should be that which anger us. But I am often, so thankfully, often reminded of the wisdom of James 1.19, a verse I set to memory a long time ago and have to preach to myself continuously. Be quick to hear or to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry. Why? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Anger of man does what instead? It lodges in our heart. It corrupts. It takes our focus upon true righteousness and what God desires. Such is the life of a fool. Verse 7, consider not that yesterday, not yesterday, that yesterday was better than today. What does that little tongue twister mean? Verse 10, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. It's the temptation when things are not going well or the way we would like them to go to point back to the good old days. 
a perpetual desire to get things back to the way they were. If we could just get back to that day and that time and that leader and this thing or that thing, then all's going to be good. But the problem is, this is the wisdom of a fool. This is Israel wanting to go back to Egypt. To go from freedom back into slavery because things have gotten difficult in the wilderness. Not satisfied with the way things presently are. Not wanting to be patient and walk forward in faith, trusting the God who has never failed. And we're no different. We don't like what we don't know. It makes us feel uncomfortable. Thus, the temptation then is to question God. The temptation to look back and think we know what's good. To think that we know what's best. But a wise person understands that even in the the good old days, things weren't as good as we remember. Which is why a wise person faithfully follows the one who is stronger and wiser than we. Which is why we should consider wisdom good protection from suffering. What does this mean? Verse 11 Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So what's the protection of money? Well, if you have it, let's say in a time of unemployment, it helps you do what? It helps you keep paying the bills, right? Keeps you putting food on the table. Those with money during a time of famine still able to buy food. Meaning money in this illustration serves as a means of protection, as does wisdom when it comes to suffering and the overall trials of life. As wisdom keeps us from listening to Job's friends. It's what keeps us from questioning God and causes us to ask good questions questions. Questions then we wisely turn to God's word to for the answer. Wisdom is also what keeps us from making unwise decisions that could lead to even more suffering and pain. Thus wisdom is a good gift from God for our protection. And then the last word of wisdom to consider, consider the work of God. Verse 13, consider the work of God Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Of course, the answer to the question is no one but God. But the truth here that we cannot overlook is who has made the path crooked? God has. The path from Egypt to the promised land wasn't a straight line. If it were, it would have taken them about a week to get there. But instead, it took them 40 years. Why? Of course, their sin played a factor. But God's children had much to learn along the way. They had much to learn along the way. As do we. So let's wisely stop and consider, what does God want us learning and doing today that will matter tomorrow? That will help us endure till tomorrow? All of this bringing us to our third and final point. 
God is sovereign over every day. Started by looking at how God is sovereign over everything, and we concluded by looking at how God is sovereign over every day. Everything certainly implying every day, but verse 14 providing the needed reminder that in the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So two things here. One, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. So when things are going well, be joyful. Give God thanks. Don't take it for granted. Eat, drink, laugh, enjoy. And two, in the day of adversity, consider. Notice it doesn't say be joyful. It doesn't mean, however, that we shouldn't be joyful. But there's a clear understanding from the the preacher here that in times of adversity, we're more likely to weep than to laugh. There isn't a flippancy here with the response. There's an intentionality with the response. Joy expressed differently in our times of sorrow. Such joy not coming through exuberant laughter, but through a healthy consideration of who God is and what he has done and what he promises to do. As verse 14 tells us to consider how God has made the day the day of prosperity, as well as the day of adversity, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. He's made them both. They needed a reminder that regardless of the day, God is sovereign over it. So adversity hits. Trials and suffering hit. And we remember as difficult as it may be in the moment, we remember that all things work together for good for those who love God. But then the question again shifts from why to how. How do things work together for good? Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Give you a moment to turn there. Where Paul asks in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? These things he's referring to are the days of adversity, suffering, weakness, trial. What are we what should we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? If the omnipotent one is for us, who can be against us? If the all-knowing one is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. 
who indeed is interceding for us. The right hand of God, a depiction of his sovereignty. <laughs> he is the sovereign one, is the one interceding for us. Then who shall separate us from the love of Christ? <laughs> shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Verse 37, no. <laughs> In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, <laughs> love, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing able to separate us from Christ. And church, oh church, we would be wise in every season, as dark and as confusing as they may be, to let these words what be what calm our anxious and weary hearts if we are in Christ. For who is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Not war. Not suffering, not cancer, not trials, not death. No, Christ will hold us fast. And friends, this is good. Let's pray. Oh Lord. Thank you. You are good and you are gracious. And I'll admit I have so many questions of why. But Lord, I trust you. Help us to trust you more today. to rest in you more today, to cling to you more today so we can make it to the morrow. Lord, we are finite and you are infinite. You are all-knowing and we are not. Forgive us when we doubt you. Help us to rest in you, we pray. In Jesus' name.